I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Elon Dar Nimrod. He is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Sydney and an expert on how people reason about genetic causes of behavior, the psychology of gender and sexuality, and the existential psychology of death. Elon, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks, Adam. Really lovely to be here. Thank you. So Elon, as I mentioned, I first came across your work in the context of genetic essentialism. Would you explain for our audience what genetic essentialism is? Uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, probably I'd have to take one step back, which sure. is to discuss what gives genetic essentialism uh, the properties, because the concept here is mostly essentialism. And traditionally in the psychological literature, we had the concept of psychological essentialism that has been kicking around for decades. Uh, and psychological essentialism basically means that people see underlying um, unchanging properties or nature or essence for any uh, natural uh, elements. So it can be minerals, it can be uh, organisms, it can be species, um, and uh, by extension, it has been shown that people are treating social groups, social categories as natural organism in that sense as well, although they are basically human artifacts. We categorize people by groups like race or gender or sexual orientation or uh, BMI. And we see those as we tend to see other natural categorizations like species or, you know, minerals like mm -hmm. gold. But you silver. mentioned decades. This seems like ancient, like humans have been doing it perhaps as long as we have language or, or cognitive concepts. Oh, no, there is no doubt that we have. So the evidence for psychological essentialism as a phenomenon um, basically has been replicated in variety of societies from Western societies to uh, hunter and gatherers, uh, cross-cultural, uh, cross-cohort, so it's not age-related. It's basically, it's something that really, really uh, seems to be a very central element in our perceptions of our environment and reality. Uh, metaphysically, it's wrong. There's no essence. There's no 21 grams that you lose when you die that were basically the essence of uh, who you were, but we perceive the actual characteristics that may define, let's say, um, a species. Let's let's talk about lions, for example. We see lions as having that essence of being a lion that give rise to all the characteristics that we use to define what a lion is. Maybe it's ferocious and it's magnificent and it's strong and it's big uh, and it's ruthless. Uh, but those are, in our perception, outcomes of being that, to having that essence of being a lion. Uh, so if we, for example, take a lion and surgically make it look like a sheep, uh, and we are changing almost every aspect that we can change about that lion, people will see, people, children, so there's a lot of work in developmental psychology on that, will still see that, you know, seemingly sheep as a lion because of that essence. So nothing that we can do takes away that, you know, underlying nature. And I think every listener, if they will reflect about how they will react to such a vignette, where you are completely manipulating a lion to look nothing like a lion, they will still have a sense that whatever we have done has not changed the lion into anything except a lion that looks like something else. This seems um, related to that old philosophical problem of the ship of Theseus, where it's like if you have a, a ship and you replace one of its wooden planks with another, is it still the same ship? And if you re keep repeating that and until none of the original material remains, is it still the same ship? In, in a sense, it is, except this is actually a human artifact. Mm -hmm. So we don't tend to, to assign the same kind of essence to human artifacts. So if we take um, a table 
and it's a small coffee table. And we add to that table, um, you know, maybe a back so you can lean back on and we are shortening it to become something that you can sit on very comfortably. Um, at one point, people will be very comfortable saying, oh, it's no longer a table, now it's a chair. Uh, so tables don't have that essence that makes them tables, but if it's a natural organism, uh, then we do tend to have that. There's really very little that you can do to make them lose that essence. And that's where genetics may come to play. That's interesting. Because before we before we go to genetics, then I'm wondering, is psychological essentialism like a secular remnant of dualist beliefs in, in a soul? Uh, I would say yes, uh, although they are probably related to more than just organisms, certainly to more than just human beings, which would arguably be the religious uh, connotation for soul. Uh, so in a sense, I think that dualistic thinking plays a big role in it, especially when it comes to uh, our understanding of our fellow human beings. Uh -huh. Yeah, because I don't, I don't know if you've done any research on lay beliefs of whether souls or life, but I'm using soul not necessarily in the religious context of something unique to humans, but more like some uh, ethereal life essence, like people might believe that the difference between an animal that's alive and dead is like whatever that essence might be that 21 grams yeah <laughs> so, so I, exactly. I re i've heard that before what is that referencing oh uh, it's referencing a movie that may have references from before i'm not sure but that's the idea that when a person dies they are losing 21 grams which is supposedly uh, uh -huh. the weight of that now, is that from like a poorly conducted study or is it just random? Pop oh, it's a, it's a Hollywood movie. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's a, I can, I think it's kind of couched in a, a, a pseudo-scientific element that guides that plot for the movie. I'm not even sure if I've even seen it, frankly, but uh -huh. uh, it's, it, it, it relates to the same element, that idea that metaphysically there is dualism, especially when it comes to human beings. And that dualism is um, very much, uh, very hard to get rid of, even among very secular individuals, even among materialistics. Um, it's very hard for us not to have that emotive response that is dualistic in nature. Uh -huh. Very cotidian. Okay, I think, I think laying this groundwork for essentialism before going on to genetic essentialism was very useful. Thank you. Oh, no worries. Uh, it, it's needed because otherwise genetic essentialism is some kind of an extension of that psychological essentialism. So without understanding why psychological essentialism existed, and as you said, it existed for probably as long as human beings had some sort of self-awareness, mm -hmm. uh, but the research on it is decades long. So how, how does this tie into our knowledge about behavioral genetics? So uh, probably one of the seminal elements that discuss psychological essentialism is, um, is a chapter that was written by uh, Medin and Ortoni and uh, where they lay out the idea of psychological essentialism. And they are coming to the point where they have to identify what are people believing essence is. So some sort of uh, uh, attempt to create a materialistic version of where is it? But I think they run into the same problem, the, the Cartesian problem, the soul issue, etc., where anything that you would create that is materialistic in nature will already limit what you can assign essence to be. So they suggested that people use placeholder. So the essence is by definition non-materialistic and undefinable from a materialistic perspective. Um, and it seems correct and it's probably uh, uh, also um, in line with people's perception, but what uh, we have argued um, bit over a decade ago, 
is that uh, genetics and people lay perceptions of genes seem to align themselves extremely well with uh, what Medina nor Tony suggest the essence characteristics are, which is being stable, uh, being deterministic. So it determines the characteristics of uh, that are shared by, let's say, organisms or species or minerals or any other natural entity. Um, and it is um, unchangeable, so it's immutable. Uh, you, you can do things to the characteristics potentially, but never to the actual essence. Uh, so it's um, inherited. So it is passed by from one organisms to the next, if that organisms is uh, sexual or asexual reproduction of the uh, parents' generation. Um, and if you take all those elements, uh, that immutability, determinism, um, stability, heritability, uh, you find that those are extremely similar to people's perceptions of genes. Uh, genes are perceived to be kind of the blueprint of organisms, the one that give rise to characteristics. However, the why it fits so well is that those lay perceptions are also limited in their scientific understanding naturally. That's why they're lay. Um, and as such, uh, people can use, they use abstract, they use genes in an abstract. If Kobe Bryant, uh, uh, who passed, uh, described the DNA of the Lakers, everyone understood what he meant by that. The Lakers don't mm -hmm. have the DNA. essence. <laughs> it means essence. It means those that element that is um, either non-materialistic, as Medina or Tony suggested, or you know we use something that is a proxy, poorly understood element that seemingly gives the same uh, characteristics as an essence does: stability, mutability, mm -hmm. determinism. Um, and we use it as a shorthand for that, because whenever we have lacuna, whenever we have some void, uh, vacuum in a way, in our information, uh, we are really uncomfortable with that. We want to fill it up with something. So Heraclitus may have filled it up with uh, humors, with the fluids in the human body, the four humors. Uh, and that's an essence too. Um, Plato in the Republic discussed something very similar about manipulation of the subject. So uh, basically, you know, the, the, the first examples, I believe, of eugenics, of how to um, create better citizens. Uh, the, the idea here is that the essence is something that have been one way or another tied to genes even before we understood what genes are. Uh -huh. So there's an interesting paradox here because it seems like we're hardwired to believe in some non-material essence, but we also seem hardwired to want to find physical connections to that, like whether that's uh, the belief in the humors or even Descartes, the famous dualist, believed that the soul was housed in the pineal gland in one specific location of the brain. Again, I think that that's exactly the point. That's the 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 seeming paradox is not really paradox because um, I think both concepts are satisfying different uh, metaphysical needs of the human beings to understand the reality in the world around them. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first step to understanding kind of groupings and categorization may be really strongly related to the metaphysically incorrect sense of essence and existence of an essence of those categorizations. And then once we have the essence and we cannot really feel comfortable with limiting the essence to any kind of material that we understand well, because once we understand it well, we understand how it falls short of 
you really uh, are one-to-one feeling those definitions of essence, then we use something that we understand not so well, mm-hmm. uh, whether it is Descartes and his glands or whether it is, you know, Joe the plumber and his genes. That, that makes perfect sense to me. That's very interesting. So it, it seems to resolve the, the paradox with, with like whether categories really exist or whether, or whether they're merely like sort of functional illusions. Like, because on one hand, you could say something like a species is an arbitrary human construct that nature is continuous. But on the other hand, if it's functionally useful to make these sort of distinctions, categorical distinctions, then... Um, and there they are. Uh, yes, this uh-huh. is, I think, the, the our need to create categories. So, because because categories are sh- very useful shorthands, and mm-hmm. even if they are wrong at times, uh, most of the times categories that have been around for a long enough time prove the usefulness. Uh-huh. Uh, there are casualties along the way casualties that we're willing to probably accept because if we don't use that categorization, then it's so much harder to navigate our social interactions, our interactions with other species, you know, um, are we going to be avoiding every beast that is big? We're going to avoid cows like we're going to avoid lions because they're always the same? No. So we cannot just use size. We need to have something else underlying to those organisms. And if we evolutionarily didn't have it and we treat lions like we treat cows, then you know we probably don't survive as well. So that use of categorization probably does have evolutionary uh, uh, advantages. Right. And then I imagine the last step from there to get from categorization to essentialism would be something like it takes much more cognitive effort to rationalize the categories as something you created. So it's just if you if you just perceive it as already like part of existence, then then it's much more of a a cognitive shorthand, let's say. Um, yes, it gives it, you know, stability, It give it a pseudoscientific also uh, a sense of true reality rather than a construct so uh, all of them are allowing us to you know be more confident in our interaction with the world and to navigate it most of the time pretty successfully Mm -hmm. so when we're talking about pseudoscience is it is that a relatively new term that's just saying it's not using the scientific method therefore it's not real science or like is, is there such a thing as intuitive science like that our ancestors would have, like, because their beliefs served a functional purpose, right? It, it was somewhat analogous to science in the sense that they sought to describe the world, even if it was wrong. Uh, I think that's, <laughs> I think you can take us now on a tangent that would be a full podcast by itself, what pseudoscience is, where, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what we call science today really follows uh, uh, the scientific method to the T, whether, you know, methodologically we keeping to the uh, uh, pure objective, seemingly scientific approach where we work for 20 years on a theory that is our baby and then one study comes along and says, well, it doesn't seem to work and we just abandon it because our objectivity. Well, maybe, you know, some scientists that are able to do that. I know very few, if any. Uh, so, but that's again. I think that's that's a different question. When I use pseudoscience, it just means that metaphysically, for example, in the more specific view of the psychological essentialism, the essence doesn't exist. So, any kind of scientific explanation for something that doesn't exist, by definition, would be pseudoscientific for me. Uh huh. So, do you think that's related to how we educate, especially in children, because you you create basically a simplification, right? So instead of, and I'm imagining that's where for genetic essentialism in particular, um, these folk beliefs come from, because most people don't go beyond the level of something like, there are these things called genes, and they're inside you, and they're invisible, and or at least invisible from our everyday perspective. 
and you pass them down and they and they influence your behavior and that, so it seems like if that's the education you're getting it's a very natural uh, it, it's very natural to turn that into genetically essentialist beliefs unless you go deeper and actually figure out what what the biology is going to be there uh, indeed and then again we've observed that in some of the papers that we've published on it that the education system and their focus or hyper focus on mendelian models uh really really emphasize that uh, equation between genes and psychological essence uh so but it's also probably an outcome of it someone created that curriculum and that someone that created that curriculum was to a certain extent like everyone else every other you know human beings at least emotively connected to that experience of having some sort of an underlying essence for natural categories. So the Mendelian work and the Mendelian curriculum probably arose from having that and was because of its simplicity and allure, also easier things to share with people that have no scientific training in that area. So, and the outcome is that we have probably strengthened that essentialist thinking and created that uh, a connection between genes and the essence placeholders. Our views about genes seem to have interesting implications on our views about free will and morality. I read a paper, I don't remember if it was by you or not, contrasting genetic essentialist beliefs. So saying that genes are like, an inherent essence of us and that they, they therefore shape our character and we would be a, a person with bad genes let's say would be morally responsible for bad actions contrasting that with genetic determinism the idea that genes are just randomly passed down to us and they're outside of our control therefore if someone has genes that make them aggressive let's say we shouldn't hold them accountable because it was outside their control um yeah again there's a few areas that genetic essentialism research has been thriving. One of them is mental health. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, genetic relations to uh, the etiology of mental health uh, challenges and illnesses. Um, and another one is criminality. So it's kind of the murderous gene out there that make people go around and murder individuals. And if so, uh, how is that related to our legal system that based on ministria, where is like there's the guilty mind element to it? If was there a guilty mind or was it like a puppet master gene that made that person do it, you know, without really conscience guilty mind element to it? Um, so in, in both of those areas, as well as a few other areas, we can really see uh, what's called a double-edged sword of genetic essentialism. So if we take, for example, mental health um, as in a, having a schizophrenia and potentially uh, misbehaving and misbehaving potentially aggressively, violently uh, towards other. Uh, so if you are providing participants in a study with information of genetic etiology for schizophrenia and then ask them to evaluate an individual that have potentially misbehaved, um, they usually assign less blame to that person uh, for those misbehaviors. If they are receiving genetic etiology information compared to alternative environmental information, for example. Uh, but they also see that person as more dangerous. They also see that person as less likely to react well to treatment. Uh, they also see the condition as more likely to be prolonged and potentially resistant to any kind of ameliorating efforts. Uh, so, on one hand, yes, they will be viewed as less guilty and they would be assigned less blame, which is good because 
you know, it's a reduction of prejudice from one hand, but the other elements are also making them less desirable to be associated with and potentially even with their relatives because there's a genetic element there and who knows what those relatives carry and they may not even be aware of. Uh, so it's so like you're more sympathetic pieces. because it's outside of their control, but simultaneously yeah. you believe it's outside of their control so you don't trust them. And it's the same with criminality. So maybe we're going to assign less blame to a murderess that, you know, their brilliant lawyer convinced us had um, some sort of a, a, a gene or genetic condition that caused that. But we also going to expect higher recidivism from those type of criminals. We're also going to be less likely to want to have those individuals walking among us with those, you know, ruthless genes inside them and who knows what they're going to do. So maybe we're not going to put them in prison, but an asylum is certainly the minimum that we're going to demand our society to put those individuals in. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like the nature versus nurture debate, except on both sides, it's nature. And it's more like, is, <laughs> is nature this outside force or is nature this sort of intrinsic? Uh... Well, we've done research about the, the exactly that. So we've done research where we are pitting nature and nurture, but we are putting both of them in the kind of uncontrollable uh, uh, situation. So you can imagine, for example, um, nurture elements where there is no control. So in one study, for example, where we wanted to compare genes to some other environmental but non-controllable elements, we offered an alternative explanation for a specific uh, outcome that is stereotype consistent about men and women uh, in a way that mother uh, teach language to their offspring in their first year of their life. So people cannot reflect on that. They don't know. So we invented something that they use more uh, count noun with boys. They use more mass nouns with girls. And that is probably why uh, men in general have uh, better mathematical skills. So we take a stereotype about men and women in one condition, we offer a genetic explanation, some specific con uh, sequence on the Y chromosome, so only men has it. Um, and in the other one, we offer just as uncontrollable but environmental explanation for it with that uh, uh, bogus mass noun, count noun element. And we found that despite the fact that both of them are you know, arguably as uncontrollable, one, one led women to underperform on a mess test and the other one didn't. So it's not just the idea of whether it's controlled or not, it seems more related to that, oh, my essence is limiting me. So it's, it, it seems to be related to a counterfactual belief of like, could things have been different while I was still the same person? So you could imagine I'm still me, but I was raised in an environment where I got the right language exposure, let's say. But then you might imagine the counterfactual on the genetic end. And I guess it relates to this intuitive belief that if my genes were different, I wouldn't be me. Uh, possibly. And, and the fact it also relates to um, one of the cognitive biases that we've suggested exist once genetic essentialism kicks into gear. So maybe I should elaborate a bit about it because sure. it potentially will be helpful. Um, so we suggested that once people are getting exposed to uh, genetic etiological information for um, certain phenotype for, for certain characteristics, um, there are four different cognitive elements that kicks in. Uh, so one of them is the determinism one. So people are perceiving uh, that outcome to be more likely if there's a genetic element, etiological element there. Uh, so because it's more deterministic. Uh, the other one we call specific etiology. 
So once uh, we have a genetic explanation for a phenotype, we are more likely to just um, walk away from any attempt or even um, have reduced motivation to explore alternative explanation for the same phenomenon. Um, so think, for example, obesity or any kind of elements that would have, you know, many different etiological uh, elements that give rise to that phenomenon. Uh, so we argue that when people have that gene explanation, then they are kind of discounting uh, to a certain degree alternative explanations such as, you know, consumption of uh, fatty food or reduced exercise or any other elements. Are they completely disregarding them? No, everything is just about a bit of movement. So it's very unlikely that people will just say, you know, oh, I've heard that there is genetic uh, element to obesity. Uh, therefore, it really doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. No, we're not arguing that. Of course, people are also entertaining, but the degree that they do is reduced. Um, and again, we have experiments to actually kind of uh, address those things and evaluate them. The third bias that we talked about relates to the social categorization. So as I said, people tend to essentialize social categories, just like they essentialize natural elements. Uh, so when people are receiving some kind of a genetic explanation for um, characteristics shared by a specific group or any kind of category, whether it would be race, um, you know, there's a gene that makes black individuals more likely to experience hypertension over compared to white individuals, or there's a gene which is obviously touching a lot of the uh, uh, most uh, controversial and heated areas like IQ, uh, are the differences between uh, black and white individuals in IQ that have been measured and observed, are they outcomes of some sort of an underlying genetic as many argue from, you know, the Belf curve, Hernstein, uh, Jensen, Rushton, and, and others, or they are outcomes of some sort of a social structure that limits opportunities to develop academically and aptitude-wise uh, for a specific group. Um, and in those elements, once we have genetic explanation for them, are more likely to create uh, less porous boundaries between us. So they are increasing homogeneity, perceived homogeneity for in-group members and increase discreteness between groups. So the groups are now looking so much more different, different animals. Uh, so if you think about, for example, LGBT, sexual orientation, the born this way argument, that have been picked up by LGBT activists extremely successfully um, and has been saying by them very, very strongly. And we also have evidence to say that there is a correlation. Those that believe in that bond this way are more likely to also have more positive attitudes towards and a, a more positive feeling towards uh, sexual minorities. Uh, we have experiments that show that as well, that if you manipulate people's understanding and, and kind of uh, give uh, either real or pseudoscientific evidence for uh, heritability of sexual orientation, people become more tolerant and more pro-civil uh, 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 rights for LGBT. Um, so there's a whole host of them. But it also, at the same time, increased that sense of us and them. So mm -hmm. now, if I am a heterosexual individual, I may feel that homosexual individuals are really almost a different species than me. We are genetically different. They have that born this way gene that made them that. And all of my group doesn't have that gene. They're different creatures. 
Um, there's that double-edged sword again. That's a double-edged sword again. So the discreteness is a lot of the time uh, uh, increasing prejudice and stereotyping or desire for social distance by increasing that sense of outgroupness. Mm-hmm. While, you know, if I perceive the behavior, if I perceive two consenting adults to engage in consenting activity that I don't particularly care for my, for myself, if I consider that to be horrible scene, you know, maybe by learning that there's a gene for that and they didn't choose to have that gene, I will, you know, experience a bit more empathy towards them too. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's, it's, but if, if you are, you know, couching your moral arguments here on focusing on the consenting and the approving elements for those individuals rather than on the fact that they couldn't help themselves, then you don't even need to justify it because there's no blame to give. So this sounds like in addition to nature versus nurture, there's an entire other axis and that axis would be essentialism because you can imagine if you're maximally essentialist, it doesn't matter whether you're uh, someone who believes in that everything is caused by your genes or everything is caused by your environment. Because if you believe that all behavior is caused by something in an essentialist manner, then you have no belief in free will. And conversely, if you believe in like maximum free will, it doesn't matter if you're on the nature side or the nurture side. Because Again, that's, that's, that's a whole podcast, right? Free will right. and determinism. Uh, <laughs> philosophically, we can go down that rabbit hole uh, and it's going to take us much longer than probably have. Uh, it's interesting because there has been research done on that uh, genetic essentialism or, or genetic arguments and sense of uh, perceived free will and determinism uh, and the compatibility hypothesis, if you are aware of it uh, in that uh, space of free will and determinism, uh, because scientifically our best understanding suggests that there is determinism and our perception of free will is something that is extremely important by itself, extremely influential, but it's not metaphysically necessarily very correct. Uh, so, but we can manipulate it and we can create uh, reactions from people. Uh, so if uh, you look, for example, uh, Kathleen Voss and Jonathan Schooler research that manipulated that uh, a, a free will perception using genetic arguments and then found that uh, when people perceive uh, to have less free will as a metaphysical characteristics, they're more likely to cheat. Uh, So it's just a perception of free will that leads to a different reaction rather than whether there is or not free will out there. You know, if anything, I would interpret that the opposite way. I would think that once you find an out, you use your free will and then use that (laughs) that out as a justification for your your cheating, let's say. Although I say yeah, that but again, if if, if 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 I'm convincing you right now that there's no free will, why not, you know, adopt the the uh, um, the self-serving bias? So uh-huh. cheating gives you something in that case, in that module that they used in their research. So by cheating, people gain access to more reward. So. If I can now say, well, there's no free will, therefore it's all deterministic. Therefore, you know, if I'm choosing, why not choose a self-serving outcome over the less self-serving outcome? So that why not question is a very big question that I think we could use to go further down the rabbit hole and connect it to your work on death and existentialism. Because I, I imagine that there's a connection to one's belief in free will there, because if the more deterministic you are, um, This isn't necessarily true, but I've certainly heard some nihilistic arguments connected to determinism where it's like, what's the point if everything is outside of our control anyway? And it it seems like, uh, tell me if this is true from an existentialist uh, or psychology perspective, if free will gives people a greater sense of meaning, even if that belief is not proven. Oh, there is no doubt. There is no doubt that if you can actually be persuaded and persuaded 
not just um, not just kind of from a rational point, but your amygdala will be thrown in, and your entire affective system will mm -hmm. also, uh, uh, in some way, be convinced in determinism. Um, a lot of the reasons to live are um, thrown out the window. Uh, what's the meaning? when you are basically a robot, when you are your entire behavior and your entire navigation of the world has been predetermined and you're just executing someone else's recipe. Um, so if we look at religious teaching and the role that they have carved uh, as free will, uh, almost in a defining element in those teachings, um, and it took a lot of kind of mental acrobatics to create a God that is omnipresent and uh, omniscient uh, and still allowing for free will to be there. Because if God creates everything and does everything and knows everything, um, how exactly do you have room for free will within? Well, you know, I don't think they've done a very good job, but I don't think that they needed to because that uh, uh, our experience of the existence of free will is so strong that whether it is actually reflective of the existence of free will or not, uh, it doesn't take much for us to be convinced that it exists either through a theological argument or through uh, um, pseudo-scientific or through a philosophical argument, but we are very uh, susceptible to those arguments because that's our experience. We feel that we have free will. I know that I could have grabbed that tea or I could have grabbed that coffee and that would have been completely up to me and it's not deterministic because that's how I feel it. Now, is it? Probably if we can isolate each and every variable in existence for that person, we would be 100% correct in identifying which one they would choose before they have chosen it, which suggests that that free will you know, experience is not actually true free will. It was something that could have been uh, predicted completely given enough information. It, it seems to be related to, to how you're defining identity of the of the variables in question. Like if you trip over your shoelace, was that of your own free will or not? Even if you're ignoring the more broad question of whether you have free will, just in this, like let's say you believe in it otherwise, but in this specific instance, you could make an argument that you're the one who took the step and stepped on the shoelace, so you caused yourself to fall. You could also say something like, the shoe is not part of me. My identity starts and ends at my skin. So the shoe is an outside force that interfered with my free will and made me fall. Well, um, I think you're extending here the argument of free will to uh, accidents and mishappening. So I don't think that necessarily people will feel that this would be part of uh, expression of the free will determinism axis mm -hmm. of discourse, because this is not uh, something that... Um, is an expression of free will uh, to, to kind of stumble over your shoelaces. Um, people will just say, well, it's a misfortune uh, and very unlikely to try to apply deterministic free will arguments for it. Deterministically, probably it's as deterministic as any other action. I agree with you that it is potentially a manifestation of the determinism rules you know, of the world, because, you know, it was determined by a series of actions that were taken before. Uh -huh. So another whole podcast then would be trying to define what the, like, if, if we don't view, let's say, accidents as violations of our free will, where exactly is the tipping point where we start to believe that an action constitutes being free or not free? Uh, we don't have to go into that. Uh, but <laughs> one one hypothesis, though, if uh, free will beliefs and free will are associated with experiencing a more meaningful life, and also if essentialist views are associated with lower beliefs and free will, does that mean that people who are more essentialist have less satisfaction in their life? 
Uh, I think it's a very interesting empirical question that I'm not familiar with anyone that actually um, studied. Uh, I don't think that there's kind of, you know, I don't think that I've even seen a correlation between uh, measures of uh, psychological essentialisms and measures of, let's say, global well-being or um, any other measures of happiness and, and uh, it would probably be moderated by whether you hold positive essentialist beliefs about yourself, like I'm fundamentally a good person, although I think there's a lot of research showing that people generally do think that. What we know, for example, about essentialism is correlations with things that we know their relationship with global, you know, well-being, etc. Uh, so we know, for example, that uh, essentialism or endorsement of essentialist thinking uh, is more pronounced among uh, conservatives than it is among progressive or liberals. Uh, so there are quite a few uh, empirical studies that show um, about moderate effect size. So about uh, correlations of 0.3 or so uh, between things like right-wing authoritarianism or social dominance orientation uh, or political or voting behavior or uh, placing yourself on the left to right continuum and uh, genetic essentialism and psychological essentialism. So it seems that uh, that perception of essentialists. And that goes again with that discreteness and homogeneity cognitive bias, right? The, the categorization element and the out-group versus in-group, in-group liking, out-group derogation behavior that is also more pronounced among conservatives. Right. Are you, you familiar with Jonathan Haidt's work on moral and political psychology? Of course. Yeah, it's, it, there seems to be a, a large connection here where it's like the conservative beliefs are also the collectivizing ones, which would also be the more categorical ones. And then the liberal beliefs would be the more individualizing ones, which are also like the more fluid and, and less essentially categorical. And I think that, yeah, there is a lot of uh, uh, points of a, a, a mutual support between the moral foundation theory, Jonathan Haidt and and some of the work on essentialism. Uh -huh. So, so then uh, there's a meta question about the essentialism of essentialism. Like, are there personality predictors, for example, <laughs> of, of whether someone are are there essential characteristics of someone who's more likely to believe in essential characteristics? So we already established that the conservative. So mm -hmm. let's call it a conservative personality. If, uh, John Jost work that can kind of take it as an individual differences where there's a, uh, different elements, uh, just world belief, again, right-wing authoritarianism, social dominance orientation, etc. So, so that's holistic element of individual differences certainly predicts essentialism. Um, age predicts essentialism, so it's a demographic uh, and it does obviously change. Up or down? Um, sorry? Up or down with age? Uh, we're more essentialist uh, early on and uh, uh -huh. we kind of grow up. And, you know, that's potentially surprising in a sense that because uh, we know that uh, age also uh, is uh, associated with conservatism. So that's mm -hmm. where... Well, at least from a developmental perspective, it makes sense. Like if, if because children believe in, in these broad essential categories and then later learn um, like, oh, everything with four legs isn't a dog, for example. Although if the age effect continues past, like past, uh, let's say the age of 18, then that would surprise me more. Well, Susan Gelman has done a lot of great work on essentialism among children, uh, mm -hmm. University of Michigan researcher. Uh, I think uh, her, she has a book, a 2003 book, An Essential Child, uh, focusing you know, on a lot of the work that she've created in the space and others as well. Uh, so yes, uh, children are very lay essentialists. 
uh, and as they grow, they are learning that uh, there's a lot of misses when you use that essentialist rules to guide everything, and we become less and less. Uh, mm -hmm. But as adults, we show essentialism and pretty strongly, so it's not something that we completely get released out of. So I was originally thinking of uh, psychological essentialism as perhaps a remnant of a more spiritual belief culturally, but that could also mean that developmentally it might be a remnant from personifying everything, because children tend to look at the world as if everything is personified, right? Even in children's stories, we have like, everything has a face. Anthropomorphizing, yes. Uh-huh. So Elon, as we wrap up, what are you currently working on and what are your future goals in this line of research or others? Um, I'm personally a, a researcher who kind of, whenever I pick a research topic, I am very passionate about it. And then I'm kind of getting less and less passionate about it. I'm just boring myself. I have, I guess, short attention span and I find a new shiny. But what I, I found very, <laughs> what I found very attractive about essentialism is that um, it led me to uh, different spaces of research that were still connected and then allowed me to completely branch out. So for example, uh, essentialism was very closely related to perception of sexual minorities. Mm -hmm. And then I did some research with uh, uh, students about our beliefs within the uh, LGBT communities, essentialist belief guide them and their well-being. So do they gain well-being from believing in the born this way? Are they elements in their, uh, in the, for example, four essentialist cognitive biases um, that are helpful and some that are less helpful? And we found evidence for that, again, among LGBT. And that led me to do research uh, on sexuality, LGBT, and later on, also gender identity that um, became less and less connected to essentialism. Uh, so I do find that uh, you can connect dots that are seemingly, seemingly unconnected at one point uh, and it's rabbit holes. It, research is a rabbit hole and, and there's so many different kind of shoots that you can go down that you may go down one and end up in a completely different place, which is, I guess, where I am now. Elon, this was very illuminating. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Adam, and good luck.